Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity to be here this morning, and I hope you have your thinking hats on. I think they've just recently distributed uh, for you the uh, sermon notes. Uh, there'll be some fill-in. I'm going to have three points if you would like. I'd appreciate if you took out those notes and maybe you could find a pencil or something and you would uh, be able to follow along. I'll, I'll keep you up on it as we go along. I'll tell you, you know, where we're at as, as we proceed. We're talking about the revealing the fingerprints of God. Um, years ago when I began the Faith Search International, I would never have thought to talk about the existence of God as a crucial subject uh, never would have occurred to me because it seemed like everybody kind of thought there must be a God. But today, everything has changed. There's a growing number of uh, people who are professing to be atheists, the growing number of people who they call nuns, N-O-N-E-S. They don't want any affiliation with any religion of any kind. Among the millennials, that's up to 25%. Uh, all of a sudden, the basic issue of our American culture is, is there even a God who exists? And of course, we operate in many areas of our country as if there isn't. We act as if there isn't. Uh, before I jump in to those three points that I want to share with you, I want to just say a word. Uh, Pastor Brad has already identified Faith Search International. We're known as the ministry that presents the gospel with evidence. In other words, we answer the why questions that people have, not just telling them what Christianity is or what Christians believe. Um, it, besides myself, I've been with the ministry uh, since uh, it began 40 years ago. Uh, we celebrated, celebrating this year, what we call uh, the uh, 40th year is the uh, year of gratitude. We're so grateful not only to God, but to people who have made our ministry possible uh, all of these years. Um, and does the gospel with evidence work? Um, yeah, it does. Um, God has demonstrated again and again that if we present the gospel and help people to know for certain that it's true, his Holy Spirit will move in and bring conviction of the truth of that. We have on record 72,000 people who have written down in response forms at our events that they have made a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. So that's a, a matter of praise and thanks. I have, besides myself, Oleg Voskresensky is our Russian evangelist. He travels uh, five times a year for three weeks at a time to all Russian-speaking countries. Uh, what did he say? I think uh, 11 time zones <laughs> that he has to cover when he goes over there. Um, and uh, we have a Spanish couple down in Texas that are sharing the same gospel with evidence. Uh, we have one that's specializing in youth work, uh, Operation Armor. I think Scott has been here. Uh, and then we have one who is a world-class illusionist who uses that as an entertainment platform to get attention and draw crowds, and then he shares his testimony and the gospel with evidence at that point. I think Adrian Van Vactor has been here as well, doing his illusion uh, with you. Uh, so I, I guess I'm kind of the tail end coming in <laughs> after some of my colleagues have been here already, uh, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to do so. And uh, thanks for your prayer and financial support that uh, you've uh, promised as we go along. Um, I, I just want to say one other thing uh, here. This is a, this is a commercial. Um, for, to commemorate the 40th year of Faith Search International, my wife and I are leading a cruise and coach tour to Greece. We're going to go to Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, the island of Patmos, uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, we call it in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. And I just wanted to let you know that we're doing it in October, uh, this coming October. And if you're at all interested, just like to get more information, these flyers are on the table right outside of those doors. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would really be the teacher. And you just use us as the recipients and uh, then your tools. 
to go out and tell others. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You have such a huge screen, I'm going to go over here a little bit so I can kind of see where I'm at and uh, want to uh, give you a, a, a tour, I guess, of, I think, there we go. It helps to have it on. Um, this is what you see in outdoor advertising around town. Have you seen them? The atheists are spying outdoor advertising to try to propagate uh, their position. There is no God is the position. Yet eight out of 10 people in the world believe there is. So somebody's got it wrong. If you look at all the religions and so forth, uh, you have to ask the question, why would that be? Why would so many people? And you understand, I'm only saying the people who believe there's a higher power, the people who believe there is an intelligent source behind the universe, they would not all be the same God. Of course, you know that. But I'm saying, why would so many people believe that there has to be a God? This is the first point. Notice the highlight on that. The first evidence I'm going to share with you doesn't tell us who that intelligence is. You would never know from this line of evidence who it is. All you know is that there must be a God, there must be an intelligence behind this universe. By observing his fingerprints of intelligent design in nature. And if you've got your sheet there, you'll find a first blank for the first point, write in the word nature. Uh, the creation, if you would like, that would be another way of putting it. Now, let's explain why that becomes God's means. God intended that there should never be an atheism. And he left his fingerprints all over the world so that all could see, so that no one would miss it. You have to go into denial in order to become than an atheist. By the way, that's not a put down. If you're an atheist here this morning, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I hope that you will listen and hear and make sure you know what you're rejecting in terms of the evidence. If you go out to Western South Dakota, you come to a monument out there called Mount Rushmore, the faces of four former presidents of the United States. I think everyone here would agree that the fact that those faces are on that rock mountain is highly improbable. That is, if you were just getting it there by chance. In other words, what are the odds that wind and water erosion, no matter how long you have, would, fa would carve out four faces on the side of a mountain? No, that you'd suggest that because it's so highly improbable, that must have been somebody did that or especially if it's highly specified. You can even determine which one is Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. It's so detailed that you can actually recognize people. When you get those two characteristics together, you have a case for the fact that this must be the result of an intelligent cause. You wouldn't say a law, you wouldn't say chance, you wouldn't say, you would say design. And that's exactly what the Bible talks to us about. In Psalm chapter 19, one through four, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Now notice here's why eight out of 10 people in the world believe there must be a God. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Doesn't matter if you're in Japan. Doesn't matter if you're somewhere else in Asia. Doesn't matter if you're in South or North America. Doesn't matter. The voice goes everywhere. Nature is there for all to see. And therefore, eight out of 10 people, regardless of their culture, regardless of their language or particular religious background, that's why they agree. There must be somebody home in the universe. That's what I mean by the fingerprints of God. Let me give you a specific example. If you looked at the white letters that I have there behind the word complex, and I asked you, please read those. Well, you could name the letters, but no, no, read the message that's there. And you'd look at me like, there's no message there. It doesn't say a thing. 
You're right. A computer could generate a complex set of letters and you have no argument that that's a result of an intelligent cause. But if I took those same letters and I reoriented them, I took a couple letters, put them over here, I put some other letters in a cluster here, some other letters in a cluster over here. When I got them all in clusters and I put the clusters in a sequence, put the dot at the end of the last cluster and the same letters can do this. The complex is now specified. They're now ordered. They're now in precision order to communicate a message. When you have complex and specified information so that the whole appeal now of nature is an information system, when you have that, you have a case that there must be intelligence that stands behind it. Books, cars, clothes, <laughs> iPhones. Nobody imagines those come about by chance. They're too highly complex and specified or orderly in order to expect that would ever happen by chance. So we look at biology. We look at every plant, every animal, and every human being in the world consists, has, has an has a information system built right into us. As you see there in the nucleus, oops, I didn't mean to do that. Um, maybe I won't try this. In the nucleus here of this figurative cell uh, are the instructions. Notice the arrows are pointing to this double helix thing. If you could straighten it out and put the sides parallel to each other, you'd find like a ladder. There are rungs going across connecting the two sides. Those rungs are chemical letters. And they are actually there as they string out. They're there there are only four of them, four different kinds of letters. Now, if I came to you and said, way back before there was any plant, there were any plants or animals, and, and, and I said, here, I've got four chemical letters. I want you to make a million and a half species of plants and animals with those four letters. <laughs> Wouldn't you look at me like, are you crazy? Nobody can do that. Oh, yeah? That's exactly what we find in all the plants and animal species of the entire world. All of them consist of four letters. The four letters are, are put into three-letter words. The same four letters, three-letter combinations, and when you then put enough three letters, you put them into strings, they become sentences. Thousands of sentences become a gene, and thousands of genes become a unique blueprint so that when you have those come together, you'll get a kangaroo, if it happens to be a kangaroo blueprint. <laughs> you get a rose, if it's a rose blueprint. You get a human baby, not a giraffe, because you have a human blueprint. You have to come up with a million and a half precise blueprints with four letters and three-letter words. The human genome has been studied. That is our 46 chromosomes that make up our blueprint. 23 come from mom, 23 come from dad, they come together to make 46. When they analyzed how many letters there were in our 46 chromosomes that make up a baby, you can see there, 3.1, what, billion? Are you kidding me? If you took your Bible someday, when you have a lot of time, free time, and count the letters, you'd have to have quite a bit of free time. <laughs> Start with Genesis and count the letters on each page. Write down on the corner of the page and go all the way through the old, then through the entire new, and you get done with the book of Revelation, get your machine out and click them in, add them up. A little less than four million in the entire Bible letters. What are the odds that the 66 books of the Bible and 4 million letters would ever come together in this sequence by throwing dice? And this number is A. This number is G. How long would it take you to throw the dice by chance to come up with the sequence that you'd hear? Well, basically you'd have to say that's Absurd, stupid, it's not gonna happen. 
this has to be the result of intelligence, not because of its content, but simply the complex and orderly fashion in which all the letters are put together. So we'd have a hard time swallowing the idea that this does not have an intelligent source. Go to any university in America. Intelligent professors are teaching that those 3.1 billion letters came about by chance. That's 800 Bibles stacked on top of each other. And God says, I left my fingerprints all over the world. You have to be in denial not to see them. Maybe everybody doesn't know that, but you, some sit and watch a sunset. Some sit and do all kinds of just casual things and say, my goodness, this just couldn't have happened by chance. That's what God means when he said, I, intended, I, did, I fully intended that no one would have to be an atheist because I went out of my way to reveal myself to everybody. By the way, you just don't need 3.1 billion letters. They've got to be in precise sequence. As all of you know, when you go into the doctor, you go to the dentist and so forth, they're gonna do x-rays. Aha, uh-huh. when you have reproductive age, they're gonna cover you with a lead shield. Lest one, of the, lest one of the x-rays hits one of the letters in a sperm or an egg. And that sperm and egg happened to be the one that fertilized. And now you've got a flaw a misplaced letter or a whole word that's knocked out. And so you have trisomy 23. You have a variety of genetic diseases. Someone has examined. We have as many as 6,000 diseases have accumulated because something went wrong with the DNA lettering. And so you can't get there by trial and error. Everything that's less than precise dies. Therefore, we would suggest that has to be the result of intelligence. Even Bill Gates, we were using, you know, if you were using one of Bill Gates' software, uh, Microsoft uh, sort of thing, he, he makes this statement, DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software we've ever created. How, oh, what? How did they get software? They create it. How much software would Bill Gates get if he fired all the intelligent men and women that work for Microsoft? None. Because you can't put a bunch of equipment on a desk in in, in Microsoft and wait over the weekend until it evolves into some good, good software. It takes intelligence to create orderly and specific. But he says DNA is far more advanced than any software that we've created. So DNA is so highly ordered, so what we call in science information rich, that it could not have risen by chance, but is created. Uh, Now I thought I'd start with the easy stuff. You all know this stuff, right? On the right? Um, Here's why I put it on there. Those Those are mathematical equations that describe everything in the universe. As you can see there, the physical universe is surprising in the simple mathematical form it assumes. All the basic laws of physics, fundamental relationships are gonna be described on one side of one sheet of paper because they're so few in number and so simple in form. Do you know what chance leads to? Chaos. We have a universe that can be described mathematically in equations. It is so precise and so orderly. So that Albert Einstein, a Jewish scientist, mathematician, never became a Christian, but he was also never an atheist. He says the most incomprehensible thing about the world is that it is comprehensible. (laughs) He said, we should never be able to understand anything about the world if it's a product of chance. He goes on because he says he had to argue with his his colleagues in science. 
He had to defend himself for saying such a statement. And he explains himself, you find it strange that I consider the comprehensibility of the world to the degree that we may speak of such comprehensibility as a miracle or an eternal mystery? He said, if this world and universe came about by chance, then we have to say that's a miracle. Well, a priori, or when you start with the assumption there is no God and everything's got to proceed by chance, he says one should expect a chaotic world, which cannot be in any way grasped through thought. Folks, think about that. Where you find precise order, you find an orderer. Now you come to your first thing on your sheet where it says the Bible confirms this. Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 20. We could have started there instead of using external evidence, but God wants us to see his fingerprints all over the world. The Bible says that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, being understood through what has been made, that is the creation, so that they are, say it with me, Without excuse, God did never intended to be invisible, never intended to be out of sight. He wanted everybody to know about him. But at the same point, because of our sin nature, we run from God rather than toward God. That is in our sin nature. There is a redemption, of course, that changes that. But in the, in the natural, we tend to run from God and as a result, we make up things to explain what should be explained by God. And one of those is the natural world. What's our substitute explanation? Chance evolution is the substitute for the fingerprints of God. All right, quickly, number two. We know there must be somebody home in the universe. But we want to know who it is. You have to go to a second line of evidence in order to find out who it is. God, by observing God's fingerprints, which are revealed in history. Your first one was nature or creation. Second one now is revealed in history. If you look there, you'll notice that the idea of the earth or the, the created world is the triangle. The circle is God, and the whole triangle is looking around saying, where's the circle? Where's the circle? I can't see a circle. So God solved that. Announced that the virgin would be with child, would give birth to a son, they'll call him Emmanuel. Do you know what follows that? in the scripture, which means God with us. In other words, 2,000 years ago, God solved the who did it question by coming to earth in person of Jesus Christ, which of course is the significance of what we celebrate at Christmas, when God came to live in history. Now you can know who it is through historical evidence. And of course, uh, we see throughout scripture the excitement. The apostle John in his first letter said, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. John gets it. <laughs> He realizes how significant it is because, folks, there's not another religion on the face of the earth who have historical evidence for the existence of God like Christianity does. Nobody has God here for 33 years with thousands and thousands of eyewitnesses. That's why Christianity is first and foremost a historical faith because God became flesh and lived with us. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the key issue as we go out and share with people. We have a track on God because he came to the earth 
where we live and which he made. Let's check it out though, because the question that most people are gonna have is going to be this. But I don't believe Emmanuel in the Bible. I don't believe that this book is anything different than anybody else's book. I don't trust it. Therefore, if that's the case, what are we gonna know about the one who came? Nothing. We can't demonstrate who Jesus is. So we're gonna look at three tests of whether or not the, this can be trusted regarding the information it gives us concerning Jesus. The first test is the people who wrote this stuff down. Were they with him? Were they witnesses? Were they eyewitnesses of the person of Jesus? Well, let's take a quick look. There you see in 30 AD, we have the, I mean, some disagree, but that's approximately the date of Jesus' death and resurrection. If we're going to prove and demonstrate that the New Testament Gospels came about as a result of eyewitnesses of Jesus, we're going to have to demonstrate that it was written by, before 100 AD. Because by then, everybody who knows Jesus is going to be dead. If they're not, then you end up being down here, late in the second century, third century, even the fourth century, where you have volumes and volumes of books about Jesus, but are legendary. They're not written by eyewitnesses. Don't be fooled when you see the Gospel of Thomas. Oh yeah, Thomas was with them. Thomas was dead for 150 years before that was written. That's pseudonymous literature. Pseudo meaning falsely ascribed to someone who had nothing to do with it. Why would someone 150 years after Jesus dies write a gospel and put Thomas's name on it? Because Thomas forgot to publish during his lifetime. And somebody looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John from the first century and said, hey, there was a guy by the name of Thomas with Jesus. He was one of the apostles. I'm gonna write a book and put his name on it and pretend that it's eyewitness quality. Same thing with the Gospel of Mary Magdalene in the red zone. Mary Magdalene never wrote anything that we know of in the first century before she died, but someone in the second century late wrote one and put her name on it. And why do we know that she didn't do it? Because the first time we find ever reference to it is a hundred and some years after she's dead. The Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Philip. A whole volume, we can go to a Bible college or other books or library. You can get them out inch and a half thick of nothing but Gospels, nothing but Acts of the Apostles that are not in the Bible. Why? because they're written in the red zone and beyond. We want eyewitness quality. We don't want fish stories. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> the more they get told, they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I don't have time this morning. I have recorded an hour and 20 minutes on this issue of a, in a, on a DVD out there, but I only have a little time to point some, this, this out here. Um, we have the John Ryland's fragment. It's been found by excavators, uh, archaeologists, and so forth that dates from about 125 AD. Not back into the eyewitness time period, but certainly not in the red zone either. We also have things like this. A book. This is called The Apostolic Fathers. These are the students of the eyewitness apostles, the students of the apostle John, students of the apostle Peter, students of the apostle Paul. We, they, they have found many of their writings. So, but these people, born in the first century and starting to write in the first century to churches, nevertheless, were not eyewitnesses of Jesus. He died before they could re recollect him but they learned everything they're writing from the eyewitness apostles who are their mentors. What do we find from Polycarp, a student of the apostle John? In letters that he's written, and notice what I have the date, by A.D. 110. All of his letters before 110, he 
refers to 18 of the New Testament books, including all four Gospels in his letters. By 110. What does that tell you about when they must have arose in written form? Before that. Or what about Ignatius? By A.D. 108, he refers to 24 New Testament books, including all four Gospels in his letters to the churches. How many are there in the New Testament? You don't get confirmed unless you know this. <laughs> 27. He quotes all but three in his letters. They must have all been in existence already by that time. And Clement, by 96, in his letters refers to 11 New Testament books, including the synoptics of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That puts them clearly in the first century. In fact, we could clearly say, keep in mind, to get a book back in those days, you have to have a scribe who goes like this. Everything, letter by letter, has to be written and copied by hand. Therefore, books don't come easy. And to have written forms means they must have originated considerably before 95 in order to have circulation capability by the time we get to 100, 105, 110. Therefore, we pushed the dates back into the first century. But to avoid those who say, well, yeah, there's a little bit of, of, of assumption there. Well, we can do one better then. Um, and I don't have time. I give specific examples in a longer presentation. But they now are finding Matthew, Mark, Luke fragments the date as early as 66 to 68 AD, within 30, 35 years of Jesus' own life, already in written form. The only people then that, they, that ever claimed that they wrote that material were his followers, were the apostles, and therefore those in the first century. Remember, there are enemies in the first century too who would like to see them put down, but no one ever refutes the eyewitness quality of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, and so forth. It became well known that these are the books that arose in the eyewitness century by eyewitnesses. Clearly, the Gospels are eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Second test, transmitted to us with integrity. You go back to 50 BC. Um, you can, the, it was the date of the authorship and publishing of a book called The Gallic Wars by Julius Caesar, the emperor of the Roman Empire. I, I really treasure this book because it's in such good shape for being that old. Um, how do you get something like that? Well, it starts in 50, and then you have to have scribal copying of the manuscripts for centuries and centuries and centuries because you don't have a printing press until the 15th century. And that's when they say all these pieces of literature have been changed. The scribes make mistakes, they add, they subtract, so that by the time you get to the printing press and put it on the press, who knows? whether it even is close to what the original authors wrote. You know why that's a problem? Because we don't have any originals. You can't go back and check out against the originals and see if you got the right thing. In fact, most of the time, you can't even go find much of any manuscripts to demonstrate this. Let me show you then what, what the difference is with the New Testament. If you go to the Gallic Wars here, you can see Homer, uh, excuse me, the Caesar, the green one next to the purple one, 251 manuscripts have ever been found. And of course, this book is based on the reconstruction from those 251 manuscripts. Better yet is Homer's with 1,757 manuscripts. By the way, that's the best of any literature known from ancient times. Oh, except for one. The New Testament has over 24,400 manuscripts. Keep in mind, all between the first century 
and the printing press in the 15th century, all handwritten manuscripts. The next closest is 1,757. If anything can be reconstructed with precision and accuracy and total confidence, it would have to be the New Testament with that many manuscripts to use for your, for your work to reconstruct the text. What about when they were found? How old are they? Notice it says Julius Caesar again, that's this one. Written in 50 BC, the first known manuscript, the oldest known manuscript is from 900 AD. In other words, would you like to know what this was like in the third century? You can't. There's no, there's no evidence. There's no manuscript. How about the sixth century? There's no evidence. How about the eighth century? No evidence. You have to trust that the scribes copied it from 50 BC to 900 AD, and you have to accept the 900 AD manuscript as being accurate because you have no way of checking it out. But no professor in any college or university that I've ever known has ever pointed that out to their students when they're assigned to read it. There's no questions asked whether this is exactly what Julius Caesar wrote. Of course, they would question the New Testament. Aristotle wrote poetics in the fourth century before Christ. There are no known manuscripts have ever been found until 1100 AD. It was copied for over 1,400 years by scribes without a trace of any of those copies ever being found. We have to hope that for 1,400 years it was, they were faithful and they copied it the way they should have without any changes or errors because we can't check it out. Virgil wrote Enid uh, about 300 years between the time when he wrote and the first known manuscript. There's no such thing in the ancient world of a manuscript being in the same period as the authors themselves. Except for one. Remember I said the New Testament books, the 27, were written between 45 and 100 A.D. Where do we find the first manuscripts? Between 45 and 100 A.D. In the same time frame. There is no time for the changes to take place because the authors are still alive. And there's no possibility that they could have falsified it because they have enemies that are very quick to point out. You're saying Jesus did a miracle over there in, in some Nazareth or, or something? Oh, come on, my, my, my parents lived there. Nothing like that ever happened. So you can't get away with exaggeration and falsification when you live in the same generation as your enemies. They'll be too quick to call you on it. You say, well, they must have changed it then subsequent centuries. Which one would you like to check out? Because we have manuscripts of the New Testament in every century all the way from the first through to the printing press. Check them out. Go to get the eighth century manuscripts. See what it looks like compared to the one you're reading. Look at the third century. Look at the 10th century. People who say they've been changed over the years by scribal copying have never become acquainted with the facts. They did not get changed. We can demonstrate that to be the case. Clearly, the Gospels have been submitted to us without significant changes. And the third test is always people asking, is it historically reliable? And go to uh, Biblical Archaeology Review, and they have uh, many, many articles that relate to biblical text. In this case, they found a building uh, stone at Caesarea Maritima uh, on the coast of Judea, the Mediterranean there. And what did they find when they found the stone? They found the name of Pontius Pilate and the name of Tiberius, the emperor, who reigned at the same time. When you go to Luke chapter 3, verse 1, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Luke is talking about real people, not fictitious people, not make-believe. These are actual, real, historical figures. The bone box was found when they were doing road construction just south of the Temple Mount in the old city, uh, city of David, and, and the equipment sunk, went, sunk into the ground. They didn't know why it ha what happened. They got the equipment out, 
and, and, and they found they had sunk through the roof of a limestone cave. They had no idea it was there. Limestone caves were used for burial at the time of Jesus of bone boxes like you see here. This is the one they pulled out of that uh, cave that day. Uh, and uh, they found three more, Two children, three children of the guy that's there. You see, they put the name of, oops, I gotta go to the next picture. They put the name of the individual on the end of the box. They carve it into the stone. By the way, this guy had to be rich or he had to be really, really important because they don't, normal people don't get that carving on their boxes. Um, who is this guy? When they got it out of the cave, the name is Joseph Caiaphas, none other than the high priest who presided over the trial of Jesus 2,000 years ago, a real guy, not a fictitious guy. The scripture simply says, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest. Archaeology has confirmed once again the historical nature of the people and the, even the places. Go to Capernaum. Why do people take trips to Israel? Because the evidence is still there. Go to Capernaum and no, the upper part you see is third century synagogue. But when you go drill down to the lower floor levels where the arrow is pointing, that's the floor of the first century synagogue that Jesus would have walked on when he taught there in Capernaum. Still there to be seen. One last example. Sorry to kind of run late here for you. Um, the uh, crucifixion of Jesus. Um, the critics were confident that the people who wrote the gospel could not have been eyewitnesses because they had Jesus crucified with nails. The Romans, they said, did not crucify with nails in the first century. They didn't start doing that until late in the second century. So whoever wrote this couldn't have been an eyewitness or they'd have known better than to put nails in in 30 AD. Until 1968, they found a crucifixion victim still in a bone box in Jerusalem. Now, the bones, remember, is 2,000 years old. Now, how did they know it was a crucifixion victim? Because the nail was still through the bones of the ankles and feet in the box. When was this individual crucified according to Biblical Archaeology Review when they published this information? Somewhere between 25 and 42 AD. It's exactly the time frame in which Jesus was crucified. The Romans did use nails. The critics were wrong. The eyewitness gospel writers were correct. The events in the Bible are real. I can't possibly give you more examples. We're already running late. All I'm saying is that historically, you can trust that the words you're reading in the New Testament is what was written by eyewitnesses in the first century, and it was... It was transmitted to us, to the printing press, and then to us without any significant changes. And this is your verse. We could have gone here first, but all I did is used external evidence to verify the truth of Scripture. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. Peter says they were what? Eyewitnesses of Jesus. That's what external evidence agrees. Once I have done that, as, you, as I mentioned to you, I'm an evangelist, and it doesn't sound like it because all I do is teach. But now I've got a chance to pick up this book. I don't have to prove to them that it's the inspired word of God. All I have to do is say, this is the best known history book of ancient times that humanity knows about. If you reject this history, then you must reject all history or you're totally inconsistent. Why would you reject one that has the best evidence of all and accept those that are inferior? So now I can open it up and read about the life and teachings of Jesus as history. And say, here's what Jesus said. He was the Messiah. He was the Lord God. He's I am. He's one with the Father. He gives eternal life. He has all authority in heaven and earth. Why should they believe the guy when he says things like that? Because they saw what he did. He had authority over sin, which they said only God would have. Authority over health. No one has ever done the second one, shown that his authority over death. I don't care what ism you're a part of. Marxism or 
naturalism or whatever. No ism has ever solved the death problem. Only Jesus, before eyewitnesses, demonstrated his authority over death itself, including his resurrection. And then his authority over the laws of nature, his authority over the demonic spirits. That's what people are confronted with then. What are you gonna do with this guy? When you know what he said, and you know what he did, as no one ever did before. What are you gonna do with Jesus in your life? Third one is by experiencing God's fingerprints which are revealed in the transformation of my life. Very short one. Uh, All I'm saying is I don't care where you go in the world. I've been in several places, not as much as a couple of my colleagues doesn't matter what language they speak, doesn't matter what culture they're part of, doesn't matter what country they're in, doesn't matter how they dress. They have the same heart condition and they have the same questions and the same needs. And therefore we can go and say your condition is that you have guilt, you have been condemned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and you have a sentence of death for the wages of sin is death. But here's what happened. Jesus went to the cross. He bore our sins. And as a result of embracing him, confession of our sin, embracing him through faith, we receive forgiveness. We receive eternal life. Here's how I like to illustrate it. God is holy. God is just. He can't wink uh, and say, oh, you're cool. I'm going to just let you go. No, he wouldn't be just then. I'm sinful and I have death. He said, the Redeemer is needed. But he says, I'm going to redeem you, he said in the Old Testament. How? He sent Jesus. And the cross became our Goel, our Redeemer. And Jesus, of course, is holy too. And I'm sinful. And Jesus on that cross said, I'll take your sin and I'm going to give you my holiness. And Jesus has life eternal. I have death. And he says, I'm going to take your death. And I'll give you my life. It's free, it's grace, it's mercy. He's redeeming us. Only pride keeps us from receiving it because we'd rather work our way like every other religion says. Try harder, try harder, you can do it, you can do it. And Christianity says, you can't do it. You need grace, you need forgiveness. Nobody else offers forgiveness. There's your third and last item. If there, therefore, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. There are more evidences for God, but this morning I picked out these three, and uh, I'm just kind of wondering whether Oak Grove is a powerful testimony to this community as they look at you as you worship, as you work at your job, as you treat people in the neighborhood. Would they ever detect that God must exist because of you? And I'm talking to me as well, because of me. For we're sometimes the only evidence for the existence of God that some people will ever see. Let's let's shine forth Jesus so that at least people will say, what what makes you like that? (laughs) And you can then give an answer for that hope that you have. And of course, I say I don't know you, so as I close here, there might be somebody sitting here who's not um, a Christian. You've never said, I'm sorry for my sins. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. We call that yielding yourself to the truth. And so I invite you this morning to uh, join me in this prayer, Um, not coercing you to do so, but if you would like freely, why don't you join me and let's pray this prayer uh, as closing together. Dear God, Thank you for the evidence of your fingerprints in the creation and in history. 
and thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for me as my Savior. I'm sorry for my sins and pray that you will forgive me. I want your fingerprints on me to transform my life as a testimony to you in the world. Thank you for your love and the gift of eternal life. Is that your prayer? They don't want to show up anybody. <laughs> but if it's not your prayer, make it your prayer. And then you were also given this morning a response form. It was like this. We don't want to waste paper, so I invite you to get a pen or pencil and take out this form, and would you indicate in the center, yes, today I prayed this prayer with you to begin trusting Jesus as my Savior and Lord. Or today I'm reaffirming my faith, in other words, been there, done that. Third, no, I'm not ready to follow Jesus. If you really care, fill this form out and allow somebody to call you, not to upset you, not to yell at you, but simply to say, let's talk about this. What are the reasons that are keeping you from faith in Jesus? So give us a chance. Put your information there. And then down below, there's a white space. I just love to get these back and hear you say, you know, don't fill it out if it's negative, of course. Um, <laughs> say nice things, okay? <laughs> no, if you feel there's something you need to say negative, do it. But I'd like to hear your comment. What has this meant to you? Has this been helpful? Did you learn something? And in, in, in what way? So if you would fill that out, and then they're going to have a basket or something as you leave this morning, would you drop it in there, and then I'll take it uh, from there. Just so you, and, and that's the response form right there. Just so you know, I mentioned to you that the three points of this sermon, that's what that DVD, Why I Believe in God, that same message but longer, and then I did this morning. And then if you are, I hope you can come back for the education hour, if I ever shut up, so you can get your coffee and come back again, I suppose you're thinking. Folks, you're going to thrill at what Scripture says about this concept of servanthood, bond servanthood. And just so you know, in case you had obligations, the president of the United States is coming to see you or something really, really like that, then you can get the same message right here. Choosing to be a bond servant, that Sunday school, that education hour has been recorded, and so you get two in one. My message on the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and choosing to be a bond servant, that's out on the table as well. This is our flagship. This is the one that has the detailed evidence for the reliability of the Bible. All of chapter two in the book is nothing but archeological and manuscript evidence. Uh, and so you might wanna consider that. I do creation evolution, because I am a scientist, and I have also done a chronological New Testament. If you've never studied the New Testament books in chronological order, not in the way they're in our Bible, but in chronological order and context, you have a thrill coming with that. With that, let me pray. Lord, thank you for the time we've had, and I thank you that your Holy Spirit has been at work in each life to strengthen their faith or to instill faith. We give praise in Jesus' name. Amen.